Yesterday, I listened to a minister preach at a funeral, and I couldn't help but realize that a large majority of the messages being delivered to the masses concerning the Christian message is a bunch of religious cliches bunched together in what some call sermons. For example, Jesus died for your sins. Repent of your sins and be saved. The devil wants you to keep you away from God. We have all sinned. The devil seeks to kill, seeks to steal, kill, and destroy, and does all this through the things of the flesh. Let us pray. Where is the clarity on this message? I pride myself on being a pretty inquisitive guy. What I believe to be paying attention to the command of 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 21. Something you all should have memorized by now. But examine everything carefully. Hold fast to that which is good. In the NIV translation, it says, prove all things. So to many of the modern day preachers, I say, prove all things. My goal in preaching this series has been to enable you to hear sermons that are dealing with the comprehensive story of the scriptures. I have committed myself to telling the whole truth. The truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. And that is why I, through every sermon, I have opened up the floor, so to speak, for questions and answers. I firmly believe that much of the false teaching that has risen in the church, the confusion about the biblical story, and the lack of clarity in the presentation of the gospel message is due to the failure of understanding the whole story, allowing for an exegetical consistency from Genesis to Revelation, or for those who hate the big terms, allowing the story to make sense from beginning to end. Pastor Emeritus Steve Schilling and I have had great discussions regarding the teaching of the scriptures. I take pride in the fact that I follow the pastorship of Steve, a man who taught exegetically from the scriptures, allowing the text to simply say what it says using proper interpretational principles. I am a more topical type of guy, dealing with the things you have seen in this series, the beginning, the prophets, the hope of Israel, the resurrection, and so forth. I do want to make sure I let you all know that the next sermon series we will be going through is the book of Ephesians. And you all know I like to add some creativity to my message, so invite a friend. It should be fun. That will start the first Sunday of September. So last week, we discussed the incorporation of the Gentiles into the story of Israel. This week, I listened to a sermon delivered by Bo Stewart at Covenant Community Church, and he explained that too many Christian leaders have tried to break into the story of Israel at Act, at Act 5, acting as if the church is a mere parenthetical statement or a hiccup, practically divorcing the church from the story of Israel. In this sermon series called The Book of Kings, setting the stage for Act 5, you will see a link in your bulletins for this sermon series in your bulletins this morning. As we have discussed for the past couple weeks, the scriptures are dealing with the beginning of God's covenant with Israel. The prophets looked forward to the revealing of the mystery that would unveil when the hope of Israel was fulfilled. That's exactly what we discussed last week and what we read about in Ephesians chapter 3. Praise God that the Gentiles had the opportunity to come into covenant relationship with God through Jesus Christ. In Ephesians chapter 1 verse 9 through 10, we read this. He made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his kind intention, which he proposed in Christ with a view to administration suitable to the fullness of times, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. So what mystery did he make known to the us of Ephesians, the first century audience in Ephesus? In Ephesians chapter 3, verses 4 through 7, the Apostle Paul makes this extremely clear. 
By referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery in Christ, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. To be specific, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus. Something was surely happening in the first century. Last week we talked about how that was done, bringing the Gentiles into one body. This week we will clarify when all of this was done. If we fail to understand the story in the proper context, it makes no sense and brings no true blessing. If you are just joining us today and have not had the opportunity to hear the rest of this series, I strongly urge you to take notes, but make sure you visit our website and listen to the podcasted sermons from weeks prior. Since the time factor, as well as what as well as what has been called one of, if not the most evidential factors of biblical Christianity, are so important, we will be discussing audience relevance and the biblical story of the biblical story and the time statements in Scripture today. Audience relevance means who the story directly applied to, which we will see is Israel. Primarily, this is their story. If you're wondering what in the world a time statement is, let me explain, and this will pretty much guide the rest of my message today. Have you ever wondered if those who read these letters really believed that these promises were for them? Don't we read mail that is addressed to us as if it's really to us? For example, take Paul's letter to Thessalonians, where he promised the Thessalonians relief from their persecution at Jesus' coming. Do you think he believed that it was really going to happen in his lifetime? Of course he did. That's why he addressed these letters to them and taught them authoritatively. They were the we and the you to whom the mail was addressed. When we read their letters, we are reading someone else's mail. What we will discuss today is the year Anno Domini 70 and as the time of fulfillment concerning all that is written in biblical prophecy. Yes, the coming of the Lord, which many erroneously call the second coming, the resurrection of the dead, the judgment of the wheat and tares, and the consummation of the new heavens and new earth, even the millennium, fulfilled by or in A.D. 70. It was Jesus Christ himself who said to the Jewish Sanhedrin during his lifetime on earth, Nevertheless, I say to you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Matthew chapter 26, verse 64. Every Jew would have known that coming on the clouds was a reference to judgment. Jesus was not speaking anything new to the people of Israel. Throughout the Law and the Prophets, the metaphorical judgment language that Jesus used to illustrate how the hope of Israel would be consummated, what events would occur, and when it's continually used as judgment language. Open up your Bibles this morning to Daniel chapter 12. Here we're going to read verses 1 through 13. Now, at that time, Michael, the great prince who stands guard over you, the sons of your people, will arise. And there will be a time of distress such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. And at that time, your people, everyone who is found written in the book, will be rescued. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake, these to everlasting life, but others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. Those who have insight will shine brightly like the brightness of the expanse of heaven, and those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. 
But as for you, Daniel, conceal these words and seal up the book until the end of time. Many will go back and forth and knowledge will increase. Then I, Daniel, looked and behold, two others were standing, one on the bank of one river and other on that bank of the river. And one said to the man dressed in linen, who was above the waters and of the river, How long will it be until the time of these wonders? I heard the man dressed in linen who was above the waters of the river, and he was raised his right hand and his left toward heaven, and swore by him who lives forever that it would be for a time, times, and a half a time. And as soon as they finish shattering the power of the holy people, all these events will be completed. As for me, I heard but could not understand. So I said, My Lord, what will be the outcome of these events? He said, Go your way, Daniel, for these words are concealed and sealed up until the end of time. Many will be purged, purified until the end time. Many will be purged, purified, and refined, but the wicked will act wickedly. And none of the wicked will understand, but those who have insight will understand. From that time, the regular sacrifice is abolished, and the abomination of desolation is set up. There will be 1,290 days. How blessed is he who keeps waiting and attains to the 1,335 days. But as for you, go your way until the end. Then you will enter into rest and rise again for your allotted portion at the end of the age. This is what's called the resurrection text. And it is telling us about the many who will awake to everlasting life and those who will awake to disgrace and everlasting contempt. The question is when. And as soon as they finish shattering the power of the holy people, all these events will be completed. One must ask themselves, what was considered the power of the holy people? I would dare to point out the city of Jerusalem and more specifically the temple both of which Jesus called judgment upon in Matthew chapter Matthew chapters 23 through 24. While Jesus was alive, he said things such as, And you will be hated for my name's sake, but he who endures till the end will be saved. When they persecute you in this city, flee to another. For surely I say to you, you will not have gone through the cities of Israel before the Son of Man comes. He also says, For the Son of Man shall come in the glory of his fathers with his angels, and then he shall reward every man according to his works. Verily I say unto you, there will be some standing here which will not taste death, till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Truly I say to you, this generation shall not pass till all these things be fulfilled. These are some examples of time statements. Jesus clearly illustrated that the first century disciples would not finish going through the cities of Israel before the Son of Man comes. Some standing in front of him would not taste death until they seen him coming in his Father's glory in his kingdom. And all things would be fulfilled in that generation. Clearly other writers saw this as a near event as well. Read throughout the New Testament. Did Jesus and the apostles lie? What exactly happened then? Sadly, when popular teaching of Jesus Christ coming in the near future is put under scrutiny, it falls short of being a true and reasonable story. Many people propagate the lie of what is called futurism, unknowingly, and yet others seek to defend it despite its serious errors. A large factor is the failure of many Christians to know the history and importance of the events leading up to the Jewish-Roman War. This is a shame, since it has been said, there is no single greater evidence or proof of the divine origin of Christianity, the great glory and the power of the Lord Jesus Christ as King, of the kingdom of God, and the accuracy and reliability of the Bible than the prophecies and their fulfillments regarding the destruction of Jerusalem by Roman armies under Titus in A.D. 70. Or as Mr. Eskin once noted, I consider the prophecy relative to the destruction of the Jewish nation if there were nothing else to support Christianity as, ir- as absolutely irresistible. Church father John Christostrom from the 4th century saw the importance of the destruction of Jerusalem which occurred in AD 70. He said, For I will ask them, did he send the prophets and wise men? Did he send them prophets and wise men? 
Did he slay them in their synagogue? Was their house left desolate? Did all the vengeance come upon that generation? It is quite plain that it was so, and no man gainsaid. Eusebius, a church historian from the 4th century, also noted, If anyone compares the words of our Savior with the accounts of the historian Josephus concerning the whole war, how can one fail to wonder and to admit that the foreknowledge and the prophecy of our Savior were truly divine and marvelously strange? Sadly, with all these great and important things to say about the fall of Jerusalem in regards to biblical Christianity, many sit in our churches Sunday after Sunday having no idea the significance of AD 70. Take pride that we are preterists. Popular author and scholar N.T. Wright recently noted that the reason why the obvious way of reading certain passages of Scripture has been ignored is because the fact that in a good deal of Christian theology, the fall of Jerusalem has no theological significance. Many passages being read as general warnings of hellfire in an afterlife, rather than the literal and physical divine judgment through the Roman judgment that we know occurred in A.D. 70. So what exactly happened prior and during A.D. 70? In Luke chapter 21, verse 20 through 22, we read, But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then recognize her desolation is near. If you take notice, Jesus says this right after he tells them of the persecution and betrayal they are going to undergo. He he gives them instructions on what to do when they see the city surrounded. Why? Because these are the days of vengeance, so that all things which are written will be fulfilled. I have a video on YouTube that explains how animated this passage makes me. If Jesus is telling the men standing in front of him about the things they are going to experience, where they are going to flee to, and the time it's going to happen when Jerusalem is surrounded by armies, all that is written will be fulfilled. Well, in AD 70, Jerusalem was surrounded by armies. And if you're concerned about what was written when Jesus said, I would say the Old Testament, You know, Jesus says, all that is written. And there's many teachers out there that will try to say, oh, well, yeah, all that was written up until that time. Well, the problem we have with that is the Apostle Paul says that the Old Testament is the basis for everything that he preaches. He preaches nothing other than what the law and the prophets say. So all, including the New Testament, was fulfilled by A.D. 70, when Jerusalem was surrounded by armies. So was it all fulfilled or not? If you remember Daniel 12, the ceasing of the sacrifice was mentioned as an indicator to the resurrection and the end of the age. Sure enough, when Masada was attacked and the governor of the temple gave orders not to sacrifice for any foreigners, Josephus, the first century Jewish scholar, says, And this was the true beginning of our war with the Romans, for they rejected the sacrifice to Caesar on this account. So Titus eventually leads the Roman troops to surround the city of Jerusalem in AD 70 because the temple governor ceasing sacrifice, the troops eventually demolished the temple, a sign of the end given by Jesus Christ. Please remind me, why and how are futurists still looking for this to occur? Historically, the way this whole scenario plays out is mind-blowing. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 23 and 24. We're going to do some reading here. Then Jesus spoke to the crowds and to his disciples, saying, The scribes and the Pharisees 
have seated themselves in the chair of Moses. Therefore, all they do tell you, do and observe, but do according, do not do according to their deeds, for they say things and do not do them. They tie up heavy burdens and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are unwilling to move so much as a finger. But they do all their deeds to be noticed by men, for they broaden their phylacteries, they lengthen the tassels of their garments, they love the place of honor at banquets and the chief seats in the synagogues, and respectful greetings in the marketplaces, and being called rabbi by men. But do not be called rabbi, for one is your teacher, and you are all brothers. Do not call anyone on earth your father, for one is your father, who is in heaven. Do not be called leaders, for one is your leader, that is Christ. But the greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself shall be humbled, and whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you shut off the kingdom of heaven from people, for you do not enter in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you devour widows' houses, and for a pretense you make long prayers. Therefore you will receive greater condemnation. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you travel around on sea and land to make one proselyte, and when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as you are. Woe to you, blind guides, who say, who swears by the temple that is nothing, but whoever swears by the gold of the temple is obligated. You fools and blind men, which is more important, the gold of the temple or the temple that sanctifies the gold? And whoever swears by the altar, that is nothing. But whoever swears by offering on it, he is obligated. You blind men, which is more important, the offering or the altar that sanctifies the offering? Therefore, whoever swears by the altar swears both by the altar and everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears both by the temple and him who dwells within it. And whoever swears by heaven swears both by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier provisions of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. But these are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides who strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup of the dish but inside they are full of robbery and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and of the dish so that the outside of it may become clean also. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside they are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanliness. So you, too, outwardly appear righteous to men, but inwardly you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous and say, if we had been living in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partners with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. So you testify against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure and the guilt of your fathers. You serpents, you brood of vipers, how will you escape the sentence of hell? Therefore, behold, I am sending you prophets and wise men and scribes, and some of them you will kill and crucify, and some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city, so that, you may, so that upon you may fall the guilt of all the righteous bloodshed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the pl- blood of Zechariah the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you are unwilling. Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. For I say to you, from now on you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. As Jesus came out of the temple and was going away, when his disciples came up to him to point out the temple buildings to him. And he said to them, Do you not see all these things? Truly I say to you, not one stone here will be left upon another. 
which will not be torn down. And he was sitting on the Mount of Olives. The disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things happen? What will be the sign of your coming in the end of the age? And Jesus answered and said, See to it that no one misleads you. And he gives them this account of what will happen at the end of the age. Woe to who? The scribes and the Pharisees. Who stones and kills the prophets? Jerusalem, Jerusalem. The scriptures testify that the time of the resurrection was to be at the end of the old covenant age. We know that this had happened in AD 70 with the destruction of the Jewish temple. The disciples knew the fall of the temple and the destruction of the city meant the end of the old covenant age and the inauguration of the new age. When is the last day? To the Jews, time was divided into two great periods, the Mosaic Age and the Messianic Age. The Messiah was viewed as the one who would bring in a new world. The period of the Messiah was therefore correctly characterized by the synagogue as the world to come. All through the New Testament, we see two ages in contrast, this age and the age to come. Jesus came during the last days of the age that was the old covenant age, this age, the Jewish age. We read that in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 20. That age came to an end with the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem in AD 70. Jesus was speaking in the last days, according to Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1 through 2. What last days? The last days of the Bible's this age, the old covenant age. When was, this to, when was Jesus to appear? He was, he was born not at the beginning, but at the end of the ages. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 26. To suppose that he meant that Jesus' incarnation came near the end of the world would be to make this statement false. The world has already lasted longer since the incarnation than the whole world during the Mosaic economy. From Exodus to the destruction of the temple, Jesus was manifest at the end of the Jewish age. So the resurrection would happen at the end of the Jewish age, the Old Covenant age. The text commonly used against full preterism, or what I'm explaining this morning, the fulfillment of all Bible prophecy in AD 70 is 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 17 through 18. These heretics named Hymenaeus and Philetus are teaching that the resurrection was in the past and people are being told to stay away from them. Wait a minute, Pastor Mike, aren't you saying that? Aren't you saying that the resurrection is in the past? Well, yes, but I'm not living in the first century awaiting the necessary things to happen. We would actually learn something. We can actually learn something from this account. They must have believed that the resurrection would not be spirit, would be spiritual in nature and therefore not subject to confirmation by any physical evidence if the early Christians believed that the resurrection would have involved physical bodies coming out of the grave as is taught today. It wouldn't make any sense. Hymenaeus and Philetus could have never convinced anyone that the resurrection had already occurred. They also must have believed that life on earth would go on with no material change after the resurrection. They didn't believe they would be on a renovated planet Earth as consequences of the resurrection. Otherwise, the teaching of Hymenaeus and Philetus would have been laughed at and would have been impossible. No one would have paid any attention to them. The reason they're teaching that the resurrection had already happened was overthrowing the faith of some, while the earthly temple in Jerusalem still stood was the contradiction between being set free from the law of sin and death, signified by that temple, and the strict observance of the law. Was a sacrifice needed? The temple still stands. This destroyed the faith of some by making the word, works of the law part of the new covenant. When the events of AD 70 unfolded, clearly the Jewish population knew what was happening. Josephus, the first century Jewish historian, in his, in his historical writings about the war of the Jews, said this, And this seems to me have been the reason why God, out of his hatred of these men, their wickedness, rejected our city 
And as for the temple, he no longer esteemed it sufficiently pure for him to inhabit therein, but brought the Romans upon us and threw a fire upon the city to purge it, and brought upon us, our wives and children, slavery, as desirous to make us wiser by our calamities. Any questions this morning? I know there was a question about the book of Revelation and how many people will say that, you know, well, what about the book of Revelation? Well, the thing is, the first thing we must say to the book of Revelation is, what about the original audience? What about the temple that must stand, that John must measure? What does this mean to Laodicea, Philadelphia, Smyrna, the original audience, the soon? What about the people that are, those that pierced him that are supposed to see his coming in the beginning of Revelation? These are things that must be taken into context. Audience relevance answers the questions of AD 70. I'm actually going through a series about the end by Dr. Scott Hahn. And in this, he's going through Revelation. And most pastors are scared to deal with Revelation because it's just a tricky book. Because people take these metaphorical things as literal and then try to apply them to our time. But the awesome thing is Dr. Scott Hahn, in this Catholic teaching, says that dating the, the previous date, the larger majority date of 96 AD of Revelation is actually at this point becoming untenable, showing that the church is growing in its knowledge of A.D. 70. I read an article by Ed Stevens earlier this week in which he said, it is not enough to know when the last things were fulfilled. We also must understand how they were fulfilled and the implications of that fulfillment for us today. I couldn't have said it any better. Next week we will be discussing exactly that. What does this all mean? What is the current reality of a Christian being in the new heavens and new earth? This will sum up our whole truth series. Therefore, I urge you all to invite your friends to come to church next week to see and hear and understand the good news. Noted apologetic author and scholar R.C. Sproul said, No matter what view of eschatology we embrace, we must take seriously the redemptive historical importance of Jerusalem's destruction in A.D. 70. Thank God that the knowledge of the events that occurred in A.D. 70 are coming to the public domain of Christianity. I long to see the day where people will no longer have a confused face when we discuss A.D. 70 and the destruction of Jerusalem, especially how that was the fulfillment of all that was written. With the rise of full preterism, we are seeing a revival of sorts. I have made it a sort of bucket list venture of mine to raise up men and women of God who are called to shed light on this very topic, the fulfillment of Bible prophecy. Blue Point Bible Church not only has the answers for a generation that wants them, but we also offer a true and reasonable and consistent biblical message. I want to let you all know that I will be posting some interesting blogs this week dealing with the timing and the events of Bible prophecy. So you can read those by visiting my blog site. You can locate the link on your bulletins. Next week, I will also announce another opportunity for you to invite a friend to share coffee with a small group of people at Starbucks and discuss preterism. I call that being Berean. And finally, before we take our missions offering this morning, I would like to say something to that end. In our recent church meeting, we discussed the finances of our missional support. I must say it is awesome that we are set on helping children with Christmas gifts. We are supporting troops with amazing technology to help them keep the scriptures close to heart. And dealing with a message like I did today, we are financing the advancement of a full preterism by supporting the teachers within the movement. Allow that to be the importance as you pray about what to give this morning. May God bless your week.